the second adaptation of uh, Stieg Larsson's 2005 novel, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, also released in Sweden under the title Men Who Hate Women, was initially designed to form the first of the Millennium Trilogy, a trilogy which had introduced the rather enigmatic um, hacker lead in the form of Elizabeth Sander, a heavily tattooed punk chick who not only is one of the world's greatest hacker, but also invo- is involved with disgraced journalist Mikael Bloomquist, here played by Daniel Craig. Well, Elizabeth Sander was uh, now played by Rooney Mara, Already there had been a Swedish adaptation and many were questioning whether an American adaptation would be able to live up to that standard, especially for a book so popular and these characters so iconic. I'm Owen. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Booze and Tea. Well, let's take it to the booth. Again, to another exciting edition of Movies and Tea. Uh, tonight, we we're obviously talking about The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, as we mentioned already, based on the 2005 novel by Stieg Larsson, a Swedish writer. And this is one of a host of uh, adaptations of uh, Swedish crime novels and that we've seen over the years, both in forms of television and film. And I don't know what it is about the Swedes, but they're certainly do love a good adult dark drama that's for sure as we will certainly get into as we go here and I think that probably makes their writing really the sort of perfect fit for someone with the mindset of Fincher has so but this is um, interesting in the fact that this was actually a remake this was an original project for Fincher and certainly a film that many were sort of questioning whether it was required or not um, many of those sale people were sort of very sort of set on the fact that they'd already seen the sort of the definitive version of the girl with the dragon tattoo with the Swedish version um, much more um, as it has, had stored uh, a very iconic performance by Naomi Rapis, who unfortunately was not brought back to reprise her role here instead going off to make the rather underrated Prometheus instead but we will certainly get into the uh, casting choices we go a bit further into this episode so I mean Kim I believe much like myself you'd read the book prior to watching the film is that correct yeah yeah I mean I had read the book and I think I did watch the Swedish version before I even watched this one yeah so uh I think I watched all I did all of those things in around the same time so I don't I don't really remember a lot of it and it was you know, the, the movie's been out for almost a decade now, <laughs> which is hard to say because I still remember it really well. So, I mean, the the story that uh, the story of the girl with the dragon tattoo is 
pretty memorable as a thriller itself and kind of darker fiction. It has some pretty intense scenes, which I think was replicated pretty well in this one. And definitely, you know, after we've been through the last two films of Fincher, which is not exactly his usual style, it definitely feels like he's back to form when we're working with something a little bit darker in terms of thriller fiction. So, I mean, it was, I guess it's meant to be, like, in the sense that he's he's kind of perfect for the project. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this is very much a, a Fincher-esque world that we see here. While it's, there's so many elements that we've seen in his previous film, The obviously the power of money being one, we see dark um darker sort of cityscapes we also see the much use of the color yellow and uh the face of evil is also very prominent here a bit at the same time this is a world which is very sort of bound to a very sort of popular source novel um certainly when the the book the go with the dragon tattoo came out it was sort of one of those book series that everyone wanted to talk about and uh certainly did extremely well and it's kind of interesting the fact that when the original trilogy of books uh, was released uh which comprised the girl with the dragon tattoo uh the girl played with fire and the girl kicks horn its nest um stick larson basically died shortly after submitting it to his publisher so it was a very unique situation, the fact that here you were given this character that everybody was really sort of into and vibing with, and then suddenly it's sort of like, oh, there's potentially no more that we're going to see of this character. So it it sort of made it put, put everything sort of up in the uh, air as what would happen, and we've obviously seen the series continue with the books, and we kind of uh, expected that this was going to be the first film of a trilogy. It was really going to take off. Certainly when it was coming up to the release of the film, there was certainly a lot of hype. Um, a lot of, especially in the casting of who was going to play uh, Elizabeth Salander. Which, I don't know if you remember it, Kim, but there were so many names being bounced around. Many of them way sort of off the mark. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, back when this was going on, I hadn't gotten... I think I had... I hadn't even gotten to blogging yet. So film and like how deep I went into it and looked into the information was not really as detailed, I guess. So I don't, I don't know, but who was rumored at um, that time? Yeah. I mean, most memorably, uh, there was, uh, <laughs> this is my personal favorite. Emma Watson decided uh, that uh, she was suitable for the character going so far as to get that horrible pixie cut and to pierce her own nipples, uh, which ultimately came to naught, even though she talked a very good game. Um, the character was offered, however, to Natalie Portman, who declined due to exhaustion. Scarlett Johansson was continued, uh, was considered, but Finch considered too sexy. Jennifer Lawrence was also rejected uh, because she was considered too tall. And finally, Rooney Mara is uh, the one who was cast, which is certainly a very unique choice. And I think very the one, if we were to like line up, you know, all the potential actresses, I think she would be very much the uh, the outside choice here. I mean, this is an actress who made her debut in the Urban Slasher, um, Evan Legends, Bloody Mary, which is you know, awful. She's in uh, the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, which is also awful. Um, and she was in Social Network, where she played uh, Erica Albright. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, obviously, having 
seen the social network prior to watching this one would you have ever sort of connected the character of erica with going on to play this real sort of badass hacker chick well, I mean, of course, if, if you base it on that Erica character, I, I actually, when I walk, because I've, I've remembered seeing Rooney Mara in so many different, I guess, different from what she is in this one, that I sometimes forget about, I, like, when I saw her in Social Network, I actually didn't recognize her at first, and I actually had to search it up and be like, oh, wait, that's her, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. I know you mean. Yeah, because she, she's in some interesting projects, and she's in some very daring ones. And I think that sometimes I forget that she's played Lisbeth Salander, but then she really fits the role. Um, because, you know, she's not supposed to, to be, like, all those people that Fincher didn't want was, you know, too sexy, too tall, whatever. It's because they're perfect. And Rooney Mara is... I'm not saying she's not pretty, but I'm just saying that she was she's able to play this kind of role really well that she's not extremely sexy, she's like very skinny, she's she's very like she has this attitude to her and this uh this style that she can get into that really reflects this character really well. Um a bit like and and I think that part of me sometimes feels like she looks a bit like uh, the the Swedish uh, the, the 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 Naomi, Ra- what's her name? What's her last name? Ra- Rapace. Rapace. Yeah. Yeah. That that did the Swedish version, and sometimes because I guess I I connect them to this role, and sometimes I confuse the both of them when I see them in other movies or listed, and then I I remember they're in these movies, but then I mix up the version that they're in. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, another couple of names to that list. You had uh, Emma Stone was also considered at one point for the role, where I think would have been really interesting. Um, and Ellen Page was another one that was continu- was uh, considered, who again I would think would have been, I think, an interesting choice. Ellen Page would have been fine. Um, she's done roles like this where she's a little bit more like, um, I guess, quiet and sinister. That <laughs> sounds like she has a bit of a darker edge to her. Mm. Um, especially now that we've seen her in you know, Umbrella Academy, where she's she has this kind of darker character as well. Uh, I definitely see that happening. But, you know, like Emma Stone, I think, wouldn't really have brought it. Um, Emma Watson, definitely not. And there's a lot of characters that, if they were able to pull it off, it would have been a really big surprise. But yet, because they haven't done and they weren't hired for the role, we'll never know whether they would have been able to pull it off, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, to Mara's credit, she did actually undergo a number of real piercings for the film, um, which included multiple ear, eyebrow, and nipple piercings, uh, most of which she removed after filming, apart from the nipple piercing mm-hmm. for the possible sequel, which never happened, citing, it's not something I ever want to get re-pierced, so I'm going to keep it in. <laughs> It's a real sort of uh, method acting, but as she said, it you know it would always feel like a sort of costume. Um, even when you're doing scenes where you're absolutely completely naked, it's all about getting into that character. Because here we do have a character who she's got multiple piercings, she's got tattoos, she's mm-hmm. got a real sort of punk rock aesthetic to her, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time she's able to move in a very sort of corporate and high. Um, What's the word? Is it, is it more? Is it more sort of like high business? So she would move. It's not un, 
Common Thread to move in the same sort of circles that we saw Michael Douglas's character move in in the game. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that she's so she's earned this reputation for being the best in her field of surveillance. And at the same time, she's got this mystique that even her bosses are, are not even sort of like sure of her, her past. I mean, we see her, um, her boss who basically says that, you know, in many ways he's very sort of protective of her and says that, you know, she's a... She's, she's sort of protected by the the state all her records are sealed and it's sort of all these different elements to it you think you know something about it and then you find out there's about five or six other mysteries behind that one so but yeah I mean the but then it, it's it's one of the I guess it's one of the reasons why the movie needs to be um, I, I keep commenting about Fincher's movies being really long and in this one it makes sense that it needs to be long because we're, we're having two parallel storylines. We're kind of learning about the case itself through um, the Boomkiss character. And then and then you have Elizabeth Salander's ca- character on the other side. But her character is very quiet. What we learn is through other people's conversations, the things she goes through and uh, what she's doing and, and all those different things in her life that she, that she observes and her surveillances and her abilities and through the words of other people and her actions, but it's never through a lot of, um, but, but it's just like her character has so much stuff to discover. Like she has photographic memory and all these things eventually come up that become really useful. She's actually kind of, it feels a lot like she's really smart and it's kind of the awkwardness that a lot of like extremely smart people have I guess like very like geniuses will have that kind of awkward feeling towards other people where she just kind of lives in her own little world a little I guess definitely so I mean she keeps her own circles we see throughout the film I mean the only sort of person that she interacts with really outside of uh, Mikkel is her sort of hacker buddy Flood who's uh, shown but never mentioned by name and he's the guy wearing the Nine Inch Nails t-shirt and a fun little nod to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross who were once again back to provide the soundtrack in their second collaboration with Fincher after uh, joining him for the social network. And I had to wonder really because obviously if they're doing the soundtrack they would be getting the footage after it's been filmed to soundtrack so whether this was like a fun nod to Fincher uh, just throwing there just to see see if they sort of picked it up. Just seeing, uh, having this character with a Nine Inch Nails shirt on and seeing what um, Trent Reznor can make of it. So, But um, because the studio was a little unconvinced that uh, Rooney Mara had what it, you know, the right look to pay uh, Salander, Fincher actually asked her to go out to get really drunk and then come in the next morning after a night mm-hmm. of feeling rather unwell. And then he took pictures of her in this hungover state and sent it to the studio to convince them to cast her. I have to say it works. <laughs> Everything about her performance. I mean, obviously, you have this sort of idea of what the character looks like, and I think while obviously the Swedish version certainly nailed their casting choice, and it would perhaps would have been nice to to see her come back uh, to sort of reprise the role. It's kind of it's uh, the Fincher sort of takes it in his own way as well and I think this is a very different film to the Swedish version the Swedish version sort of 
is what it it is. I think it's sort of a more straightforward adaptation, and when Fincher has it, he sort of adds that sort of Fincher flair to the proceedings, which sort of turned into a much sort of darker adult drama. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in in, in reality, this is it's like Fincher is able to bring these different elements, and it takes a different angle. I guess in in, in one way, while it's long, it doesn't have as much of the details if i remember the source material properly but i might have mixed it up with the other books i don't know right now um okay but at the same time like i feel like the adaptation has its own little flair some things are cut out and the focus is more on specific few people it limits its characters so that you're in this world and it's easier to understand these characters give them a lot more depth and then your focus is much more on just solving this case and and that and and that's the main focus of it that keeps it very just on track to just discovering where things are going and the little twists and what happens and because there's already a lot to go off from from that point obviously you know we have little things like Elizabeth Salander is the one character where we learn a lot through her, and there's some of those really extreme scenes with uh, her new guardian, forgot his name, um, that, yeah. that was very shocking. And I think probably one of the things we do need to discuss is uh, the, how do you call it, I, how do you call those scenes, I guess, very extreme moments? Um, I, don't, I don't know how you call it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, obviously the scene, the scenes of of graphic rape yeah, graphic, and sexual yeah. abuse that um, are are shown here, and both those are in again in the Swedish version. I mean, the Swedish, the Swedes being you know European, they're not, they don't handle sex the same sort of embarrassment as you know as Brits and Americans um, do. They've got a very sort of open attitude to sex and nudity as we see, and you see it with film, you know, the directors like Tintop Brass and, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to remember another foreign director from Europe now. Um, but yeah, you see it in a lot of European cinema. It's a very sort of, uh, free to spin. So I think even by that sort of standard, it is kind of shocking, but it, it's certainly an eye opening sequence. And it was, it's the one I was most surprised actually made it across the American version. I thought they would have really, sort of watered down the sequence but no Fincher really goes full tilt for it um, and it's not just an, that initial sort of forced blowjob sequence in her, her, her handler's sort of office but also when she's in his apartment and we have the shot of the outside of the door and it's slowly, move, the camera's slowly moving back down the hallway and I thought oh that's how Fincher's going to approach it he's going to be like you know you get this taste of this horrific sequence and we're hearing it through the door and that's going to be how he says it but no we sort of then go we take a little jump forward and then we see exactly uh, what true horrors are going to lie um, ahead and I think it's important in terms of the plot that you see this very sort of graphic and grotesque mm-hmm. sort of sequence as it makes her eventual revenge only the sort of more uh, point in because it's sort of like you you have to see her be subjected to this one act for her to subject him to her act it's sort of like you have to have one you can't sort of have one without the other but it's also it, it also goes in hand with what they're trying to talk about right the the whole point of this story 
was to talk about men who hate women or at yes. least men who take advantage of women. And in this case, while obviously in comparison to who is the you know, who is behind all of these uh, the the disappearance of of in the search of Harriet and the deeper plot that goes in that case and and the person responsible for that one, this is kind of like a lighter version. This this um uh this guardian, he's He's just taking advantage of her, of her, the fact that she, she needs his help to kind of satisfy his own, I guess, desires, I guess. I, I mean, obviously he has some pretty extreme fantasies going on and extreme preference, sexual preferences. <laughs> so I'm trying to be yeah. delicate with what I'm saying. So, um, but it, it's, it's the... I remember when I read the book, this was one of those really, really shocking scenes. And sometimes I, you know, you can discuss about whether this scene is necessary in the movie and whether it needed to be there. And in my mind, I think that it has such a strong presence in the story itself and the source material that even if the audience in the Americas are much less accepting of things like this and get shocked easier by it. I feel like it needed to be there to really bring through the point. And it really shows Elizabeth's character because it's, it's yes, she might have been taken advantage of in, because she was surprised, but when you give her enough time, the revenge is there. She's not some weakling. She doesn't go and go home and cry about it. She goes home and tries to figure out how to fight back and win back her freedom so that this will never happen again. Exactly. And we certainly see her as, as this fighter. I mean, she has the um, attempted mugging on the subway uh, before this, which is also set up. And I think this whole sort of sequence is important because it's sort of filling in the mystique of her character. Because there's so many things that are sort of hinted of. It's like, why does she have a state appointed um, guardian? Because obviously before this, um, her former guardian, Holger, as who's we see has suffered a stroke um and we allegedly he had a much more lighter relationship with her he basically you know was just there to to fill in the boxes and sort, sign the paperwork and basically let her get on with the thing where in comparison to his replacement uh, nils who's this absolute sadist and uses his power to um extort things that he wants and i would assume it's not just from from uh, from Lisbeth, but also basically um, many of these girls in this ward who, um, if they're like her, I would consider them to be seen as being sort of like damaged. I mean, she's got he lists off these whole list of uh, things. The fact she's been arrested multiple times, she's got assault charges, she's got um, stays in mental institutions um and there's also other colorful details the fact that you know she is highlighted the fact she's bisexual and she's very uh very sexually sort of active so she does what what she wants to to do and it it sort of um you see, by him having this sort of uh, power over it, it's sort of another challenge for her to overcome it's sort of like he's uh, hold, withholding her money um and by her getting her revenge she also secures her independence as well and essentially being able to live this sort of uh lifestyle that she wants where she's not constantly on surveillance where she's not having to constantly ask answer to people to 
ensure their funds are being uh, maintained. So we talk a bit about a bit about Bloomquist because we've got well, obviously got uh, distracted yeah. by Elizabeth, who is obviously the more interesting character here. Um, but obviously, Mikhail Bloomquist, he's as we said, basically a disgraced journalist who's hired by by uh, Henrik, who's um, who's uh, granddaughter, sorry, grandniece. She had disappeared a number of years ago, and since every year he receives a different dried flower painting, and he is hoping that um, that Mikhail can obviously find out what happened to her, and offers at the same time to help him get back at the businessman who basically has ruined his career. Now, in obviously in comparison to uh, Lisbeth, I mean, would you, Mikhail's kind of more sort of straight-laced, he's more sort of like traditional, but at the same time he's got those sort of less traditional elements to him. I mean, the fact is that he's involved with his, uh, his editor at the Millennium Magazine, who's we, who herself we find out has got an open marriage. So uh, while his marriage might have been destroyed by this relationship, her marriage maintained, and uh, her husband's well aware that she's uh, carrying on with um, with Bloomquist. It's kind of funny in the opening sequence as well when Elizabeth is giving her report. She's also commenting on his sexual prowess, <laughs> which is a real sort of in-depth uh, surveillance job, I have to say. Well, I mean, it's not really that hard when she's like hacked into his computer and she's tracing the guy down you know like everyone pretty much is kind of like nothing is really a secret to her she can break mm. through she can break any she can break through anything and and i'm sure there's like other communication and things that they've had to secure these these uh rendezvous with the the editor right so it's not i don't think it, it, you can see that Elizabeth is very detailed in what she does and very efficient and that's why she's the best she finds the things more than they actually need, but she only reports on what they need. Definitely. So it kind of made me wish that I'd uh, seen this in the cinema when it when it had come out, just to only see the audience's reactions to the word cunnilingus. So, because that's a word you don't have in Hollywood cinema. You don't have many things in this film that you have in Hollywood cinema. And... The role is obviously here played by Daniel Craig. Um, when they were talking about casting, there were other names bounced around, including George Clooney, Johnny Depp, who I think would have been pretty good, Viggo Mortensen, who again would have been pretty good, and Brad Pitt, which I don't know. I don't know if Brad Pitt would is too pretty for this role or not. I think he's... I, I don't know. I feel like at this point, Brad Pitt's, Brad Pitt's done too much Fincher projects. And we're starting to really mix up his characters that he doesn't need this project anymore. Not that, you know, not that Daniel Craig needed it. Um, because I don't know if this was, was this, was this, uh, this was right before, was it, was it after? Then This was after, after James Bond, right? Like the, the um, Casino Royale. It was, yeah, I mean, he had done Casino Royale. They were in production for Skyfall, which initially meant that he wouldn't have been able to do the film, but Skyfall got put back, so he was able to do this film yeah, uh, so, in the meantime. Yeah, so so pretty much that comes to the point that Daniel Craig didn't need this project, but it was definitely something that... I guess maybe it was an interesting project to him. So, it, yeah. It, it, I think so. Yeah, because um, it's, a, it's a decent project to be in. I mean, between between Casino Royale and all those, uh, and even like uh, between Quantum of Solace to 
to what uh, Skyfall. There was quite a few movies that he was a part of. So it, it it's definitely one of the better ones during that time. <laughs> As I look yeah, at the IMDb listing. <laughs> it's kind of funny as well because Fincher came to the set of... Um, basically, he was um, filming the events of Tintin. So he comes to the, where Spielberg's filming filming that. And he's, in, of course, in a full body motion capture suit. And uh, he takes his meeting with Fincher, and Fincher goes away. He's, you know, he's happy with what he finds. And well, apparently, one of the other crew members that um, turned to Daniel Craig and was like, "Yeah, you didn't, you, you haven't got that role at all." Um, apparently, they were wrong because <laughs> Craig was obviously cast in the role, and I think, I think he does well for the role of Michael Brunquist. It's also interesting the fact he has a Swedish accent for all of five minutes. <laughs> I don't know. I mean. I don't, I don't really, sometimes because I'm, I guess because I'm Canadian, I can probably pick out a southern accent the most, and, and then all these other accents kind of get a little bit mixed up in my, in the process yeah. of things, um, so it doesn't bother me as much, but, I mean, if we talk about Daniel Craig, I think he does okay, but Daniel Craig has something where he's very, he's very, like, I feel like his role is always this, he always acts the same way. His reaction is always the same. He, like, when you're putting him in James Bond, or he's just not in a fancy suit, he's in, he's freezing in some Swedish northern area kind of thing, <laughs> right? It's only his outfit is different, but his facial expressions are very much the same. So, to me, it's not really like, like, his acting needed to be really good. It just needed to be sufficient for the role to portray the character. And, I mean, in that sense, he is really fitting because, I mean, this is also kind of a mystery. It's something very similar to... He, he actually needs less action here, and he just needs to get beat up. So, it wasn't exactly, like... I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you just need a willingness to be hung in someone's basement. Exactly. <laughs> that was basically you know, exactly. And then, and then the willingness to, 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 to have these sexy moments with ladies, you know, um, which, which I'm which, sure is just which isn't so a problem hard. because he's he's James Bond, so he's used to it. <laughs> it's yeah, it's kind of like if the cameras didn't cut away, that's what we would have seen. Good <laughs> on you. I mean the whole the whole like romantic angle between Bloomquist and, and Salander, it's just a middle aged fantasy that is of, of the writer. It's so stupid. It made no sense in the book. I mean it makes sense obviously from I don't think Salander's it was, point. I don't think it was supposed to make sense because in, in the end, I feel like a lot of the whole thing was yeah. So the the, the deal with Bloomquist is that he has this thing where I always feel like like, he's never in control of the situation. He's just really good at investigating. But everything that, like, it's all initiated by, by Elizabeth. From that point to the how it ends where the, she sets up the situation so that uh, the, the, the well, Wennerstrom or whatever is, has his own issues. Like, like gets caught up in, in, in all the bad that he's done with the information that they have. And... And all of this is propelled by, by Elizabeth. He never like he. You never feel like there's like this real chemistry or this real like connection between them. They're together because 
they're together right now and they both need company. And that's what their relationship essentially feels like. Yeah, I think their initial meeting in her apartment, though, is probably one of my favorite scenes of the film. Yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of it's kind of interesting because she's sort of like she's um, already done the full surveillance on him already. And that's basically how he's introduced to her um, in the fact that he finds out that prior to being given this assignment to they the Vangas carried out the surveillance on him and he was completely unaware of and the fact that he knows there's certain things in that file that it would have been impossible for anyone to to get and this sort of makes him realize that you know this is the girl that he's going to want to help him with his research and by him he just randomly turns up at her apartment and it's such a shift in power because up until this point she's the one who's held all the power and she's very used to being the one in control and here she's presented with someone who's basically challenging her her power her control a constant control over the situation by just randomly turning up at her apartment unannounced even though he does bring breakfast which i think if you're going to turn up at anyone's place unannounced if you bring them coffee and breakfast i think that sort of a helps move things over away yeah i think i think in some ways that really sets up a dynamic of how she becomes really interested in Bloomkiss. Not obviously, I feel like she was interested in him in the beginning because of the surveillance that that she did on him. But at the same time, I feel like, in some ways, he finds she finds him a little different from the people that she's met, especially with you know dealing with the the crappy guardian, <laughs> the a sadistic guardian, and just. I guess the 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 people that she bonds with is very different. And with Bloomkiss it's, it's not the same. The meeting kind of I th- I think in some ways when people are are very like when women are are very like strong characters, it kind of surprises her and you see that and you see that surprise in her face as he goes in and 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 he's kind of like commanding the situation, just walking around, setting himself up, putting down the breakfast and putting everything down, waiting for her to come out and just telling him, you, maybe you go put on some clothes and whatever, and hmm. then I'll wait here with breakfast, you know, whatever sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's I mean, the, even the sequence before that where you've got Salander at the nightclub and she's picking up the, the chicken, the whole scene is sort of shot in these sort of flashes, almost like a disco strobe light sort of effect where we see these flashes and it's just constantly taking these little jumps in time um, within the within the club. I think it's just another absolutely stunning sequence. I mean, the whole film itself is absolutely stunning to look at and it really sort of makes the most of Fincher's visual flair i mean obviously in this use of the yellow in particular is yeah just uh looks really looks really fantastic because um he we get to see him have like a number of uh dinners with um uh martin vanger who's um the sort of ceo ceo of vanger industries and again we also see like the sort of grandeur of uh henrik vanger who's sort of like the head of the family and i mean this is a family who are old money yeah. Um, and that they all basically live on this island, and they're a family who's, but with the disappearance of um, Henrik's sort of grandniece, it sort of had this knock-on effect of the whole sort of family falling apart because they didn't get along with each other the best to begin with, and this family business. I mean, it's also a family with numerous Nazi members. 
mm-hmm. uh, which has some color to it, certainly. Yeah, but I mean, it. Okay, I mean, here's a really good point to say that I always think that Stellan Skarsgård, who plays Martin Wenger, is so underrated as an actor. He's able oh, yeah. to carry these roles so well. I mean, even when you go back to another very, I guess, very sexual movie like Lymph- Nymphomaniac, he, his role is small, but there's still so much to his character there. And that's just the beginning of a list of tons of other movies that, he, that he's been in, obviously. He's got great diversity. He's able to play charming and sinister. Yeah. in the same breath and it's it's that transition from one to the other um and he's one of a number of swedish actors who brought into the production which i think was really good really great to see it's the fact that fincher didn't just basically try and cast a bunch of american actors and have them do swedish accents he brings in a large swedish cast as well and by filming it in sweden as well it did actually take a lot longer because of the constant to the lighting so the sort of setups took a lot longer to adjust to uh, compared to Fight Club which is they absolutely just breeze through compared to this film mm. um, but yeah certainly I mean Skellen Skarsgård was just really enjoyed the production mainly because he got to sleep in his own bed for the first time in years because normally he's having to film over in America and here he was filming in his <laughs> basically his hometown so um, Christopher Plummer I think is also really good um, I think that the version they play here removes a lot of irony of the Henrik we see in the book. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it works well for the role. Um, and I think... I'm trying to remember, I know, I'm trying to remember they had another actor in mind for the role, but I've completely lost who it was now. But... Um, nope, it's gone. <laughs> um, but no, a Christopher Plummer, another actor I'm always happy to see turn up when he turns up for sure i mean i don't i don't remember a lot of christopher Plummer other than uh what was it sound of music (laughs) okay (laughs) so like very early young age him and then i think the last time i saw him was in the beginners or something (laughs) so i'm i i don't know i always feel like he turns up and then i forget that he's been in that and it, it just kind of happens that way let me take a look. What else? What else have I seen? I feel like I've seen him in something else. Uh, well, I always he's see another him Canadian actor. Hmm? Who you don't? He's another Canadian actor you don't realize is Canadian. Kind of like Mike Myers. Mike Myers, I know he's Canadian. Yeah, no, I, but I never assume Mike Myers is Canadian. I, I, but... I yeah. Well, I, I kind of knew, but I mean, yeah. Um, he's in Dragnet, he's in 12 Monkeys, Syriana. Yeah. Um, National Treasure. Uh, I watched the that. New World. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there, um, there's, there's quite a few. I mean, I sometimes don't remember. Like I said, I don't remember what he's in sometimes. But, I mean, he does a good job here. He's not exactly. I don't think the role is too huge, especially since once the investigation starts, his involvement really. It's more of like a a smaller role that he's involved in and he kind of just shows up at the end when everything's solved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a shame that obviously the novel doesn't allow for him to be present all the way all the way through. I mean, he obviously sort of sets up the mystery and then comes together, comes uh, back for the end. Yeah, but I think it's okay because the I, I like the fact that they kept it pretty simple because I remembered when we had the book. It, it sometimes got, like, once you... 
you had to connect all these faces to everything. It gets really confusing because the Vanger family is huge and everybody has beef with each other and there's this there's this problem with this person, this person is so complicated and then that person is that way and you have to remember all these names and it gets really confusing. So the fact that they closed it in so that it was really focused on just those few characters but the other members of the family kind of got mentioned, it really kept things on track. And you didn't really need the Henrik character to be there all the time. He was there when he needed to be, and he was kind of like the propelling force of moving this to really trying to make it happen. But, like, to solve this case and find Harriet or figure out what happened to Harriet. And it works for, for what it is. Obviously, I mean, Christopher Plummer is a great actor, and it would be great to see him in a bigger role, but I think with what he had, it... It had, he carries it well. For sure. Um, and it's funny you mentioned, obviously, uh, as well about the numerous Van Gogh sort of characters in the film and certainly in the book. Um, and I love the fact that um, Bloomquist actually responds to sort of like, it's getting rather confusing when he's sort of listing all the family members. and <laughs> Where they're living, which house, and what's happening to who, who hates who and who gets along with who and who he talks to. Yeah, that conversation yeah. was entertaining. I liked his um, little cottage that he gets to stay in, though. I think that would be... My sort of ideal hideaway. Um, but yeah, it's. I think the problem with the film is it suffers in the same issues with the book. Um, with the book, it took forever to sort of get get going, and I think with the film, it spends a lot. It sort of is sort of tied into that same sort of framework, unfortunately, where. It feels that it takes a while to get to get yeah. going initially, and then we get to the end, and it takes <laughs> a bit too long to wrap up the actual mystery, because we have this, we have the sort of like what we assume to be the the conclusion to the mystery, but it's actually not. It's just another mystery that we sort of stumbled across as a, a sort of um, sort of accident, really. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel a little bit... Um, this movie in general, other than the shocking scenes and those shocking moments, it's more a movie of moments. And then everything in between feels like it's just there. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, the movie the, the movie doesn't move very fast. I didn't mind the book so much. I actually remembered I, 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 I liked the book quite a bit, and I breezed through, like, all three books in, in like, I don't know, a month or something like that. It was pretty quick. Oh, really? Yeah, so I remembered I, I, I did it fairly quickly because I bought all three books in one shot. I had it in a box set, and I, I had finished it really quickly. But... Uh, I didn't have issues with the pacing in a book, but some things that got translated into a movie um, just felt like it took too long to set up. Like, they took a lot of time in the first half that I appreciated to really kind of build Daniel Craig, like the Bloomkiss character, and then to build the Salander character, and to understand this whole case of how Harriet got miss got went missing and the whole situation, and it was done really well. I mean, in the sense that it was you know beautiful to look at visually, it was really nice. Uh, they 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 did it all where there was a lot of depth into it. But to get into the case, they 
the second half was kind of like where all the action was in. And it was just constantly looking at more information and more information, <laughs> looking through more information and, and some speed hacking on Salander's part. And then some exchanges. And then it just felt like the case was going, but I wasn't really involved in the case. Like, they didn't really give you a chance because everything had to be hidden in order to build the twist. To build to that point where you were like, oh my god, this person, he's involved in this. And um, and the shocking moment of who it is and what he's been doing and how this happens and what's wrong with this family and that sort of thing. And and it takes, it, it builds into this thing. And I think all of this, the setup, had no other choice because they needed to do this in order to create the mystery behind revealing that twist i don't know i don't know i'm yeah. kind of i'm kind of split in the sense that i feel like the movie was long but at the same time there were moments that i didn't feel like it dragged as much so i'm kind of like i'm kind of on the fence as to why ugh, i just don't know i mean it's it, it, it's a hard one to say like i enjoy the movie when i watch it but it's not a movie that i frequently want to go back to watch I know what you mean. I think I was just so enthralled by the fact it was finally like a, a genuinely adult thriller. Yeah. Um, the fact that it's not afraid to go dark. It never dumbs or treats anything with sort of kids' gloves. And yeah. It's the fact there's so many, as you said, there's so many Fincher moments in the films. It's just like when Bloomquist is reading the case notes. And every time he underlines something, we see a flash in his mind's eye of what he's yeah. reading and i thought those things were really sort of nice so it's got a lot of sort of flair to it the soundtrack's really soundtrack interesting as well i think I think um, we i never talk soundtrack about anything but girl with the dragon tattoo was one of the ones where i was watching this and i was like man this soundtrack is amazing it just matches everything really builds the atmosphere really gives it a lot of um really matches the style of it uh yeah so i absolutely yeah the soundtrack actually um, runs to three CDs of material. Most TV shows last, have, even for a whole season, just amassed to one CD. But uh, they really went all out and created three CDs worth of material. Most of which is even in film, included in the film, but they still released it anyway as part of the official soundtrack. Um, and they, were do they went for this sort of extreme length when they did the soundtrack for the Watchmen TV series as well. There's about three, three or four volumes of that as well. And that's also really awesome as well. Um, just trying to see what else there is. Um, the waitress that um, Bloomquist is seen having a discussion with at the start is actually the daughter of the original actor who played uh, Bloomquist in the Swedish version. Mm. Um, Fincher basically thought it'd be funny to have the sort of predecessors of the role having an interaction with uh, the role her father had obviously played. Mm -hmm. I have to agree. Um, at the same part, Moon, Moon Rooney Mara. Um, to give her sort of character more sort of skeleton and post started skipping meals and that she had to be forced by Fincher to eat meals because she was getting too skinny but she's got I mean she does get deserve some real credit for her dedication to this role um, I mean yeah. Rooney Mara is Rooney Mara is also you know she's in a lot of stuff but if you look at her IMDB she's in a lot of movies but you never remember that she's in those movies. Mm. 
<laughs> I mean, I remember her the most in a ghost story, and it was just because it was such a unique movie to be a part of. And even though her role wasn't particularly huge, she was one of the roles that was was known pretty much and and stuck around that you know obviously her one scene is very popular of just eating pie for like 10 minutes or something so i mean i i personally think she's she's really great as an actress and this definitely gives her you know does her justice and not just you know watching her eat pie and emote while eating pie <laughs> so <laughs> which i have to say if you can really get into that character then you will never i always say if you can get through a ghost story just as a side note if you can get through a ghost story you will never be scared of slow burn movies ever again <laughs> okay um there's something i want to also bring up here is um we mentioned already we we're talking about the soundtrack which features the cover of immigrant song uh, by which is a Led Zeppelin song, and here it's uh, covered by um, Trent Reznor and Karen O of the Yeah Yeah Yes, and uh, it's used to incredible effect here as we get uh, Fincher giving his take on a James Bond opening title sequence, which really highlights many of the key sequences of the film, as well as the characters and personality personality within the film, and. Uh, I have to say that this is a total sequence that um, Nick Rehack, who joined us for the Zodiac episode, I'm not sure if it's actually on the episode, but um, certainly one of the discussions we had when we were talking about Go With The Dragon Tattoo is just that how amazing this opening total sequence is. And I have to say it is absolutely probably one of my... F if we were to do, like, top Fincher moments, I would <laughs> say this would definitely be in there because this sequence is incredible. Yeah, I mean the opening sequence, right? Yeah, the opening yeah, sequence yeah, yeah. where it's all yeah, like sure. black no, liquids I, and stuff. I I totally agree. I think it's one of the ones that I remember the most. Um, obviously, I in it, it it brings in so many of the elements of what we're about to see, and it's so relevant to what you're doing. But it's so pretty to look at, also like visually, it's so it just kind of grabs your eyeballs, you know. You really, really just focus in it, and and I really like that. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, you can you can look at it and you can like pinpoint. Oh, this is a representation of you know, of um, the hacker sort of character. This is the vigilante side. This is you know, mm -hmm. this is the all these different um, sort of bits and pieces. Like you see the elements of Salander's tattoos, such as the phoenix mm -hmm. and the dragon tattoos. Yeah. Um, you get the uh, flowers elements which is obviously a reference to Henrik and the press flowers he gets on his birthday every year so it's just really fun to uh sort of go back and I mean there's even like element sort of like the references to um what I assume would be like the Elizabeth rape sequence mm -hmm. in here because we obviously get the female f female face that's sort of shattered yeah. uh but again is this to sort of tie into the general sort of domestic violence theme that runs throughout this film because I mean it's not well it's obviously has that prominent scene with Elizabeth we also get numerous other references to violence against women throughout the film um, one of which is obviously a big sort of catalyst for one of our mysteries here yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say yeah but um yeah I really I love Immigrant Song and I love uh I love this one because it's, it's again it's that one this is something that that I love if you do a cover version well it changes the meaning 
of a song entirely. Um, so when we look at Johnny Cash's cover of Nine Inch Nails' Hurt, the original version is about heroin addiction, but when Johnny Cash sings it, it's like an old man looking over his life. Um, whereas Immigrant Song is, is a song about uh, Vikings, and uh, when it's done by Led Zeppelin and here, it's just more about the rebellious spirit. It very much matches with the Salander sort of character and her sort of personality. Kind of makes you want to go off and just do um, rebellious shit. And then you hear it, so. Um, so that's. I've sort of added it to my sort of. <laughs> my, my current amp up mix is uh, got that in there, so. Um. Fun little bits of uh, background information now. Um, the film opened at number three in the US back box office behind Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which uh, starred uh, Mikhail Nyquist, who played Boonquist in the original film, and also Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows, which starred Naomi Rapace. So the uh, two lead actors of the Swedish original managed to beat the American uh, remake. <laughs> The film actually did turn a profit. Um, I always think this is looks impressive in terms of profit. Cause, I mean, the budget was ninety million. It took in two hundred, two hundred thirty-two point six million, which apparently is not what the studio wanted because they scrapped the two sequels. Um, would you like to see Fincher do the rest of the saga? I mean, it would have been interesting to see where he could take it. Uh, it's definitely like, like you know, like you said, this is this this is his cup of tea, right? This is really the type of thriller that he would get involved in. And it has the source material that's really worth for him to really look at. And I think, in my mind, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is not a bad movie. Um, I, I wouldn't rank it as top Fincher quality, obviously. But no, it still has a lot of elements that work. And visually, it's done so well. Um, but it's always hard because... Like, I would have liked to see this into something, into into a movie, but there are certain stories, and I think The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has that kind of feeling to it, where once you know the twist, it's not shocking anymore. So when I watched it after I had read the book, and after I had watched the, the, the movie Millennium, I didn't... I didn't really, I guess I don't feel the shock as much when we see the twist and the whole unveiling and revealing the whole um, big scheme behind the whole deal and the, you know, um, domestic violence and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so these books are really hard and I think that's, that's one of the issues is that I would have liked to see it just to see where it would have went, but... I always feel a little skeptical when people do a lot of adaptations because you really don't know. It's it's really a fine line between being good and and being kind of disappointing. Maybe not bad, but disappointing. The scene where um, of Sanders uh, office is actually belongs to Dice, the uh, people behind the the Battlefield se- uh, series of games, mm-hmm. which um, if you like video games is important. Um, there's uh, also a real bunch of uh, interesting sort of bits about about the obviously the the aforementioned rape sequence, which we, I think we've talked about a surprisingly large amount. I wasn't expecting us to really sort of dwell on it as much, but um, basically, uh, Yorick van Wegen, who de- who uh, plays the, obviously the 
the the rapist in this uh, film he basically after he shot the sequence spent the whole day locked in his hotel room crying um he also offered to shoot the uh, sort of the scene uh, where the tables were sort of turned on him he offered to basically shoot it nude as a way to sort of like uh, even up for the fact that when Rooney Mara did her sequence she was uh, stripped and it was basically decided that um, that nobody wanted to see this abusive, abusive man naked and instead he wore flesh coloured trunks which are then digitally removed but you know credit to him for wanting to do that and I mean when we see the shower sequence um, afterwards most of that bruising is real that we see on uh, Rooney Mara's body so yeah, no, that was, that entire part was really shocking, like, the, because you don't, you see the, you know, pulling off the clothes and, and the general, like, it's not focused on the action itself, but the reaction and the sounds and, and, and it, it's very, it's very troubling to listen to, <laughs> very disturbing, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the guy who does this is, is, is very very good and he looks really familiar like i've seen him in something else he was in he was he he was the game master in um escape room the 2019 version of the shitty version yeah now i see it that was great he's also in 47 ronin he was in black hat which was awful um a lot of swedish (laughs) productions unsurprisingly (laughs) which of course i've not seen um yeah so yeah he was obviously he as you said he was in um escape room in a very in a very cool role though um the use of orinoco flow uh during the the basement torture sequence was uh completely by accident uh basically they were going through certain skazgar's um ipod to try and find music to to uh play and uh daniel craig flicked onto flicked onto that and basically said uh, that was the song that they should use so initially it was met with laughter but it really sort of suits the scene rather bizarrely um, at the same time they were going to use saran wrap originally for the suffocation sequence but it was just too clumsy to use so uh, Fincher sent the production crew out to the nearest supermarket just to buy plastic bags to use instead so and I just well that would have been hard to find nowadays <laughs> yeah wouldn't it most imp- most expensive bit of your production is buying plastic bags, but um, yeah, that's. Um, I mean, is there anything else you want to bring up on this one? No, I think I'm good. Um, but yeah, I think with Dragon Tattoo, it's a surprising watch. I mean, it's not perfect by any means, but there's certainly enough interesting sort of sequences, and it's way and above uh, the curious case of Benjamin Button. <laughs> Um, but I don't know if it's a sort of one of the Finch ones I would sort of return to. I maybe return to it every sort of couple of years and feel that it was like completely fresh again. But it's not one that was sort of like put into the sort of the regular rotation. And at the same time, do I really sort of class this as like the hidden gem of the Finch filmography? I mean, well, I mean, we will see. Exactly. <laughs> We will see, won't we? Because <laughs> we're coming up to we're coming up to the end of the season, so. So, so let's get into some further what further viewing now. I mean, obviously, if you like the guy with the dragon tattoo, where do you go from here? Well, I mean, the obvious choice is obviously the Swedish original Millennium trilogy. 
Um, other than that, I mean, it would be, I think, a movie very similar to very, you know, a lot of twists and strong kind of um, complex female lead would be the next movie we're going to be looking at, and that would be Gone Girl. And if you want something a little bit darker, I always refer to Gone Baby Gone because that's a movie that really left a mark on me, apparently. So I always refer to it whenever there's something with uh, a big twist, but very dark. Yes, definitely all very good uh, choices there. I mean, for myself, I'd refer into the mix uh, 8mm. Again, both feature a investigator going in to being hired by a family of wealth um, to look for a missing girl. And, uh, yeah, I think 8mm is very underrated. I mean, the fact that it's a Nicolas Cage movie and uh, Joe Schumacher movie as well, I think it means that a lot of snark casters tend to sort of really uh, push it down and really sort of nitpick over the details. But I think it's still a really fantastic thriller and uh, features some really fascinating performances and characters throughout. I think it's... uh, it's definitely one of those uh, interesting deep dives into sort of the sleazy underbelly of society. So, well, yeah, and plus, I mean, right now it comes at a time where we're recording this right after uh, the pretty much Joel Schumacher has passed away. Has he? Yesterday? Yes. Oh, I know it. <laughs> so uh, it would be kind of you know pairing it, and it would be. Uh, a good way to remember him, you know, watch some of his uh, underrated films. Okay. Um, another one I want to throw in there as well is Silence of the Lambs. And this is just the unique pairing of personalities to solve a case. Obviously, in the case of Silence of the Lambs, we've got the FBI tra- trainees, Clarice, who's uh, teamed up with the master psychiatrist and cannibal, uh, Hannibal Lecter. And here we have that yeah, unique pairing here where we've obviously got the investigator recorder Bloomquist teaming up with the eccentric uh, master hacker and investigator in the uh, former cylinder. It's that mismatched pairing of two personalities obviously coming together to solve um, a case even though with this one no one has sort of like an underlying motive which is obviously what makes uh, Silent Salam so interesting. But Yeah. Uh, you know, on th- you know, just 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 a little thought I had is that if you like this, I actually think if you're into gaming and you haven't played it yet, Life is Strange actually <laughs> is a pretty good pairing. <laughs> I don't know if you agree, but I actually see some similarities, especially when we have that final scene where he gets hooked, and that really kind of connects to how Life is Strange story kind of turns out at the end. Oh, yeah. The, uh, we were talking about Killer Motive. I think there's definitely connections that can be drawn between uh, both of be- both of their basements for sure. Yeah. Very good. Um, so obviously that was our run- review of uh, Go with the Giant Tattoo. Thank you as always for listening. And uh, Kim, where are we going to next? Well, as I said before, we are heading to um, our last movie of the season, but we will be progressing to something else after. So the last movie of the season for David Fincher is 2014's Gone Girl. Um, also a adaptation of the Gillian Flynn uh, movie, who also wrote the screenplay. So, and it stars Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. Yeah, definitely. A film which I think surprised a lot of people 
with uh, just how capable their cast was. Not in the case of both Ben Affleck, Azra, and Pike. But um, just overall, this was a thriller that everyone saw and suddenly everybody wanted to talk about. And we're going to be getting into the... Uh, the deeper mystery when we look at that on our next episode but um thank you as always for listening and uh if you're not done already please do hit the like and subscribe button and maybe leave us a review it really helps raise the profile of the show you can follow us both on facebook and twitter and instagram and you can also check out our blog which is movies and tea podcast.wordpress.com which has got a complete archive of episodes for the previous four seasons as well as interesting bits of writing and our friday film club where every friday my, myself and kim pick a film and we put it together into a fun little double feature. Sometimes there's theme, sometimes there's not. But either way, it's a chance for us to dive into films that we really want to explore further. Um, but until then, thank you uh, as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim. And we will be back next time to talk about Gone Girl. Good night. <laughs>